My name is Chloe, and you're listening to Girls Gone Canon, episode 21, Sansa 4 and Sansa 5. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter and also on Tumblr, and as well as Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on YouTube and Podbean. And I'm Eliana. You probably know me as Glass Table Girl on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, the Maester Monthly Podcast, and as a rhythmetric or Sailor Moon, but whatever the fuck, on Twitter. <laughs> That's you. That's me. That's me. Uh, so thank you so much, everyone. And thank you for being patient this week while we had a few life changes. Yeah, I thank you so much, you guys, for being patient. I know, patrons, I'm so sorry we didn't get you your episodes early this week, but Eliana does have a little surprise for you. So hopefully you will see that soon. She just made a face at me, but it was a loving face. But I... Moved to Philadelphia this week from the great north in Michigan. Uh, it's a crazy week. I moved like over Saturday. I packed up at 3 p.m. and I left by 8 p.m. And then I was in Philadelphia by noon oh and moved in by 2 p.m. So in about a 25 hour span, I moved to Philadelphia. So that was so fun. Much. Uh, yeah. So that's exciting, though, because it's a little bit closer to something that's happening next month which is, of course, George R.R. Martin is going to be in Jersey City. The greatest city in the United States. It is. It's, uh, it's Word Bookstores in Brooklyn and Jersey City is presenting him at the historic Lowe's Theater Monday, November 19th at 7.30 p.m. The doors are at 7 p.m. If you're like us nerds, you're going to be there probably earlier than that in line. Maybe some uh, New York beers happening on the sidewalk. We don't know. But if you want to hang out, uh, we're going. I know a lot of other people in the community are going. I'm excited, man. I uh, I feel like I moved right at the right time. Literally the day after I moved was the announcement for this. You know, like I was just sitting there like, ah, this is a thing. George so. announced it for you. <laughs> he is doing this for you. I mean, sure, it's his no. home state. That's another fun At thing. At Lies and Arbor just moved there. Yeah, he's like, I gotta, I gotta get my ass back there. We have the sixth Sansa chapter left, and that's it, you guys. Then we're on to a clash of kings. I mean, of course, all the chapters are good. But just so you know, since this is our first time doing a POV that actually spans multiple books, what? this is um, what you can expect with next episode. First, we're going to cover Sansa 6. We're going to do an outro. That sums up Sansa's story in A Game of Thrones because, like, while this is a whole large series that is all, like, one story, many of these characters do have a narrative arc or, like, plot arc or something that happens within one book and just within one of the legs of the story, if you will. So, of course, we're going to do that and then we're going to pick up again with Sansa in A Clash of Kings by doing an overview of Sansa's story in Clash, and then do a Clash of Kings, Sansa 1. Yeah, that's in just a couple weeks, so get excited for that. I'm really excited for it. I think that a Clash of Kings is one of the more underrated books in the series. I think it kind of surpasses Feast in some of those ways, because I think Feast is very split, where most people, I don't know, most people kind of assume Clash is kind of just like, eh. It's there. You know, people, I think people don't go back to their roots enough. They don't appreciate a Game of Thrones and Clash and all this groundwork and different things that we've been reading. So 
leading into something even more exciting, we have an exciting idea for a Patreon episode for you that are patrons of ours of Girls Gone Canon uh, coming up in October. We've had, this took so long to decide. So if you're not a patron, this is one for the books. You will not want to miss out on this. It took 27 minutes of discourse for Eliana and I to decide. And of course, if you want to be a patron that can get these special episodes, feel free to check it out at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Sign up for the $5 or above tier, the stranger tier. Yeah, it's Stranger. You know, if you sign up for Stranger or even Thunder or Chestnut, like, you know, if I can go wild, sign up for Sweetfoot Resources. You're going to get this episode. Yeah, actually, our our largest tier for Patreon, we do have a patron in it. Shout out to Hayden. Uh, If you're not into that yet, the biggest one we have, we do offer a $40 tier, which in my opinion is ridiculous, but you know, why not? We have some fun stuff coming out of it, though. Uh, you'll get a physical gift this year along with a lot of other really big perks. So we will send you a gift around the holiday season, whatever you celebrate. But our Patreon episode uh, for October. Eliana, would you like to tell them what it is? Yeah, this October we picked a very spoopy episode for you. Ooh. And spoopy! And because, of course, Halloween is about putting on costumes, we're going to talk about the different disguises or assumed identities, etc. in A Song of Ice and Fire. Get it? Because they're dressing up. Like, for Halloween? Yeah, we're going to do identity! Woo! I think it's exciting. Spoopy. It's, it's, it's a little spoopy, but not super. Yeah, absolutely. And we still get to cover a few things. There were a lot of ideas we were throwing around. We were talking about like an episode on like fire whites and ice whites, like John, Catelyn, Barrick, et cetera, you name it, in A Song of Ice and Fire. Or like we were talking about the ghosts of Harrenhal, just talking about Harrenhal's history. But I think this is the one we want to talk about identity of disguises, of costumes, of people putting on a facade. Just I think it's going to be a great episode. It's like I'm particularly really invested in i might get a little too uh shiny tinfoil on it for eliana's sake but it's gonna be great yeah so again if you are not a patron of ours and high five shout out to all of our patrons you all know who you are you're all sitting there whispering get a job uh and and dad no and dad no definitely uh and dog locusts i mean i think that's just uh, we uh, we we're particularly branded at this point and it's because of you guys So, yeah, we might be a cult. Thank you for being a part of our cult, you guys. We have a couple things to highlight in emails and tweets of note. And the first thing we want to highlight is shout out to this gray area on YouTube. If you haven't checked out her channel, please give it a give it a quick shout. We were recently on her Overwatch series on YouTube discussing cripples, bastards and brokens and. We had a blast. That was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. She's fun. Gray is fun. I, uh, I've, I, we hadn't gotten to collaborate with her before, but it's always been in talks, and that was a blast. Uh, people have told us it was kind of like a slumber party, but that's okay because that's like our thing. I think. I think we're all having a slumber party weekly with you, right? Uh, we also got a lovely iTunes comment from our good friend Phil, and Phil Turs says. When I was sore, beset, and friendless, hounded from my home and in peril of my life, Girls Gone Cannon took me in and nourished me. 
fun podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously and always promises a fun time. Philip Terzig makes us sound like Jesus. After three days, they rose again to record a podcast. Yeah. I love it. I love that. Thanks, Phil. That was fun. We did get a great comment from Styles of the Veil about our podcast saying... Hey girls, I'm listening to your second Sansa episode. You mentioned how Jane had to leave the tourney because she had a weak stomach. I thought it was interesting since she ultimately becomes false Arya, and as we know, Arya might be the most deadly character, female, maybe even including males. I haven't done a kill count. Not sure if it means anything or if George was planning on Jane being a fake Arya at this point, but I thought it was interesting. I agree. We have a lot to talk about with Jane Poole. We have a whole Jane Poole segment mm-hmm. today, so... I think we're going to get launched into that really soon, but I love that. I love any Jane-focused analysis. Same. Jane, I was I was lobbying for it, but I don't know if I guess there's enough material, but I was like, what if we did a Jane episode? So, Jane Poole, this is a great email that's going to come into play soon. But first, the lightning round. Yeah, lightning round. Eliana, lead us in. All right, so we start off with Eddard 12. Ned isolates Cersei in the Godswood after learning the truth of Jon Arryn's death. Ned warns Cersei that he will be telling Robert the truth after he returns from hunting and gives Cersei a chance to save her children. And of course, since we cut out anything not really Stark-related in this lightning round... In Eddard 13, King Robert returns from hunting on his deathbed done in by a boar. He has Ned write his will and declares Ned the regent. Ned writes a letter inviting Stannis to take the throne as the rightful heir, while his younger brother Renly tells Ned to seize the Baratheon children to to keep power in the city. At the end of the chapter, Ned lays his trust in the wrong hands. In cold hands. John 6. John's pretty miffed that he's been assigned to the stewards and not the rangers. Sam has to keep him grounded and remind him he's being groomed for command with J.R. They say their vows beyond the wall, in front of the old gods, and Ghost brings home a rather icy trophy for his owner. It's a dead hand! Look at what wait, I got Wait, wait, wait. Ghost brings home a dead hand to John. You know who else is going to bring home a dead hand? Probably John from Howland <gasps> Reed. Anyways, I have a very... You like that? That was pretty... A dead hand. Is this foreshadowing of Ned? Icy, I think this is foreshadowing. The ghost bringing a dead hand back to John right before oh. Ned dies in a few chapters? Yeah, that's foreshadowing. Whoa, my mind is blown. Thanks. Thank you for this, You're Chloe. welcome, babe. Keep it up, hot stuff. I'll give you all the hot takes on this cast. (laughs) In Eddard 14, we have a very simple summary. I think you all will know it very well if you've been with us from the beginning. If not, you need to go back. you got to listen to those Eddard chapters. Dad, no! Dad! Dad, Dad, no! no! It's not good. It's not looking good for our protagonist. Then that brings us to Arya 4. Lannister guardsmen interrupt Arya's dancing lesson, led by Marin Trant, in demanding the Hand's daughter. Sensing trouble, Sirio fends them off while Arya escapes, but he pays with his life. 
Siri, for all is dead, don't have Oh my me. god, he's so dead. Uh, in Sansa Stark 4, an overview, we return to our story with our princess stuck in a tower atop Magor's holdfast, much like our last princess in the story. Three days have gone by since Sansa snuck out and told the queen that her father was trying to ruin her life. Right? Summoned from house arrest, where she'd been checked up with Jane Poole, Sansa is brought before the small council and told that her father's a traitor and her duty lies with the crown. She's forced to send the queen's words to her family members. They came for Sansa on the third day. And of course, sure, this is our start to the chapter, but this whole third day thing has some very religious vibes. It's a, you know, he rose on the third day, and I wonder if it's like channeling more about how Ned Stark dies for our sins. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much religious kind of imagery, especially in a Game of Thrones. Uh, there's a lot that we get into when you look at the three king's guards. Something I've really thought about a lot is like the three wise men, just like what we get into with Clash with mm-hmm. Daenerys. So some very religious vibes, absolutely. Sansa dresses herself very carefully for meeting with Cersei and the rest of the small council. She wears a simple dress and it's made of dark gray wool and it's very plain cut, very simplistic. It's heavily embroidered with silver fastenings. It is, of course, reminiscent of the dress that Cersei wears later on when she's dealing with the faith and she's trying to dress a little humbly. I think this is the right dress. Yeah, it's the same kind of idea. Sansa and Cersei both choose their outfits for the situation, and the faith dress that Cersei wears has some very light needlework on it. It's high-collared, you know, it covers her bosom, it covers her neck. Jane has been confined with Sansa this whole time, but Sansa thinks Jane is being childish and useless. She's been crying about her father for three days, which, well, (laughs) of course, that's a little depressing. Yeah. How many days is Sansa going to cry over her dad, you know? Yeah. Anyway, Sansa comforts Jane once Sansa's buttoned into her dress, which Jane isn't apparently very helpful with, and attempts to lighten her spirits. And then Jane just looks at Sansa and begins to sob. Sansa again thinks Jane is being so childish, but she's ignoring something Jane clearly understands. Everyone is dying outside of these doors. Sansa's clinging to the idea that if she dresses right and performs the proper courtesies, everything's going to turn out fine, and her fairy tale world is not going to be ruined. And we're going to come back to this a little later in the episode, but there's this interesting idea here that maturity, the way that Sansa interprets it here in terms of being a lady, is that idea of like not showing your emotions, and that means keeping your composure, but obviously life's a little more complicated than that. Sansa recounts the first day of the slaughter, and she too had also wept. She was locked in the walls of her room in Maker's Holdfast, and she heard the sound of steel on steel, which is not new to her. But this was a new sound, because along with it are like shouts for help, moans, groans. It's not the only time in her her story she's going to have to hear that from outside her window. Curses, pain, and dying men. In the songs, the knights never screamed nor begged for mercy. And of course, Sansa is kind of starting to learn this isn't the songs, but she's not really accepting it yet. The worst hits are yet to come. She pleads through the door, asking for her father, for Septimore Dane, for Joffrey, the king, whoever. And 
they don't answer. The only time the door opened was late that night when they thrust Jane Poole inside, bruised and shaken. They're killing everyone, the steward's daughter had shrieked at her. She went on and on. The hound had broken down her door with a war hammer, she said. There were bodies on the stairs of the Tower of the Hand, and the steps were slick with blood. Sansa dried her own tears as she struggled to comfort her friend. They went to sleep in the same bed, cradled in each other's arms like sisters. So, of course, there's major Ariane vibes, the princess in the tower vibes, that no one's telling Sansa anything. She's asking and asking, and no one's answering. And, of course, there's the other vibe from this, which is a sad vibe, right? Like, Sansa choosing Jane as her sister and struggling to comfort her, and they go to sleep cradled up and curled up like sisters. And it's sad because it also alludes to that, that Jane is Arya kind of language as we've kind of already hit on a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a great catch that Jane playing the role of Sansa's sister later on is what damns her. And of course, I personally think this is both an underrated line in the story and an iconic line. They're killing everyone. Just like Jane shrieking that. Yeah, we come back to it a little later so I won't go too deep, but even later when we get a little more, because Sansa starts this chapter just like Ned starts his chapters, right in the thick of it, in the middle of everything that's been going on. We don't get exactly at the beginning the past three days, but by God, by the end of the chapter, we do. There's also, of course, this great imagery that's absolutely horrifying and tells you how bad the situation is there that there are bodies on the stairs of the tower and that the steps are slick with blood. That's not a normal fairy tale and Sansa's blocking that out in her tower. Yeah. The fighting ends and Sansa and Jane are still confined in a tower in Mager's Holdfast. There's this eerie silence that's washing over the Red Keep and it's filled... The, the Red Keep is only filled by like armed Lannister guards who are walking the walls and... Also, Jane sobbing, which, like, that sucks. The servants bring them really good food, though. I mean, like, it's the same thing every day, but it still sounds really good. And I'm into it. And then they also have clothing from the Tower of the Hand. But none of the servants speak to them. Also reminiscent of those Aryan vibes. Then Sansa says, Please, I need to speak to the queen again, Sansa told them, as she told everyone she saw that day. She'll want to talk to me, I know she will. Tell her. I want to see her, please. If not the queen, then Prince Joffrey, if you'd be so kind, were to marry when we're older. Yeah, it really reminds me of Ariane playing that card, like we mentioned. And, I mean, it just reminds me of, Please, tell the prince I want to see him about Doran. It's uh, very Ariane, very much so. Very good writing there on George's part. The second day of their capture, the bell rings and the king is dead. It fills Sansa with dread, and that's something we're definitely going to come back to when we get to some uh, in A Storm of Swords. I love this quote, though. This is, like, one of the best quotes. The sound rumbled across the city like thunder, warning of the storm to come. That's, that's Robert Baratheon's death that just rippled across the sky. Robert Baratheon, the Storm King, right? The storm that comes once Robert dies, the War of the Five Kings, all of it. Just, it's a perfect line, beautiful prose. I love it. 
I, yeah, it's such a great way for him to go out, you know, if you ignore all the other parts about him being gouged by, like, a boar, but the, that language is just awesome. Yeah, and, like, the behavior. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, if he had his, like, shit together, maybe this would have, have happened. I don't know. Well, you know. Well, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. know. If you let Cersei win in the end, like, you lost. Yeah. We'll get to that. Sansa tells Jane what the bells ringing means because she knows instinctually. She wonders against hope if the fighting was against some enemy that is storming the castle to kill King Robert. <laughs> yeah. Also, though, like this line, I think, of course, this chapter is very frustrating for many people because uh, we learned that Sansa ran to Cersei. But we also see that Sansa in this moment, it, that's very clever. She doesn't actually know. No one's told her what it means when the bells ring. No one's told her that that means that the king is dead, but she connects it because she has this really great intuition and is very good at finding those connections. And at first, this seems kind of unimpressive, like, yeah, you're whatever. But this skill of hers hones becomes more honed, and you're going to see it more, of course, in A Feast for Crows when she pieces together that collaboration between Littlefinger and Lynn Corbray. Yeah, and of course her behavior towards Jane, where she acts like she's an upper intellectual, that she understands high society and Jane probably does not, and she's just trying to play things off like they're fine. Sansa ends up becoming Jane after this instance in the end, like you mentioned. Like, how many times does Sansa cry about her father's death? No one is telling her what's happening, and her first thought is to worry about King Joffrey, and of course about her father. That night, she dreams of Joffrey as the king, and she has queen in woven gold, and that everyone comes and they must bow to her and give her her courtesies. It's a very selfish preteen dream. There's no way else to really describe it, and that's what her subconscious is telling her. Her subconscious is warning her, saying, girl, girl, open your eyes, little girl. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is a remnant of the oh, old... Yeah. Well, I guess not. Of, of yeah, the the old outline like where Sansa was going to be married to Joffrey. It totally is. But yeah, as you all know, this doesn't happen. Boros Blount, though, he does take her to the Queen the next day, and this absolutely incredibly nauseating scene happens and plays out. It's awful. Sansa extends her courtesies to Boros Blount, though, and he returns them to her. Kind of flatly, kind of lackluster. You know, he's Boris Blount. You, what do you expect from a man named Boris Yeah, Blount? he's a total hedgehog, first off. <laughs> Callback. Um, secondly, though, it, it's, it really bums me out, that scene, because as we know, Boris Blount isn't some valiant knight, right? And Sansa thinks that, you know, this is all courtesies and that if she is good and she is courteous, it will all be fine. Everything will turn out fine. And she literally, like, breathes in and she says the nicest thing to this ugly dude. Like, she even thinks he's so ugly. And he's just, like, an asshole to her. Everyone regards Sansa as a stupid young girl when she's just trying to figure out how to play. And Boros's white cloak is actually clasped with a lion brooch in this scene, which is totally the first sign telling us the power of the city has shifted, right? She forces herself to smile at the Lannister guards that are at her door as well, which, sign of Lannister power. Because, of course, there are no more Stark guards left in the Tower of the Hand to defend her. And Sansa recalls that the two days passed, like, when Cersei had, like, 
Cersei and Arya's Oakheart. Remember him? Leader to the tower. And Cersei claims that it was actually for Sansa's safety. And she's like, I don't know, dude. Sansa expects to go to the royal apartments, but instead Boros takes her out of the holdfast, and she's cringing away from the iron spikes below the bridge, and because she's afraid that if she looks down, she might see someone that she knows. She's afraid to. She's afraid to see yeah, the truth. Absolutely, and there's something interesting here that Cersei, while she has gotten rid of you know the Starks, basically, like she's fixed that problem. She knows it's about to come to a close, one way or another. She's surrounded by people loyal to Robert. Uh, all Cersei has are these upjump knights and different people that end up eventually joining onto her powers. So the fact that we see the Lannister power circling around and that the White Knights, she can't dismiss them. It's it's very interesting. Cersei, while she seems like she's one up on everyone, at the same time, she's kind of her defenses are lowered. She's not. She may have somewhat won the situation by birthing Joffrey, but. There's still some obstacles in her way, which we'll go into in the next chapter. I love the line that Sansa is looking down at those iron spikes and just remembers. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of Sansa, you know, in Sandor's scene in after the turning when he tells her to look at me, look at me. And there's something that I'm totally going to go into probably in the next couple uh, chapters, maybe in A Clash of King, of some Phantom of the Opera parallels with Sandor because it's just, it's been a while, it's been a while. Yeah, I've never thought about this Phantom of the Opera connection before. Um, I guess I guess I've only like seen or read, uh, not read, seen Phantom of the Opera mm-hmm. a few times. Boros Blanto next takes Sansa to the council chamber, and she thinks that oh, the council chamber is exquisite, and Sansa's just blown away by the majesty of it. And it's kind of funny because we didn't really hear about the council chamber being so fucking awesome in Ned's chapters. He's like, oh, I hate being here yeah it's it's really interesting because it shows Sansa's want to be a part of the southern politics and culture and how southern politics and culture have rejected her so far we talk a lot about how Sansa is Ned's daughter for sure but she does have some of those Catalan aspects and this is an aspect for sure the southern culture and her subscribing to it ends up rejecting her her intrigue in this room is just, it's a room that has scrolls and candles and some statues lying about. It's something that shows her desire to be in that room where it happens, where the magic happens. It's not just the Iron Throne and a golden woven dress for her, right? Like for Sansa, this is this is court life. This is the life that she thought she was being trained for. And she's met with that life snapping at her neck, at her throat. It's a seat at the table. Where the laws yes. are made. For Sansa, it's those parchments just lying everywhere and her reading them. Like, that's good enough. We're met with the small council. Baelish, Pycelle, Varys, and Cersei is what's left. All of them wear black to mourn the king. And Cersei's dress is, of course, the most dramatic and the most ironic in a way. While everyone is wearing black, Cersei's is just cut kind of ridiculously with a high collar Black silk, red teardrop-shaped rubies sewn against her neck and bosom. Sansa remarks it looks almost as if she were weeping blood. And if Cersei's dress is weeping blood, it could suggest really seeing through the entire facade of her mourning, right? Mm -hmm. Cersei smiles and Sansa thinks it's sad and sweet, which of course we know is her helping to appear more sympathetic to Sansa and a little bit more manipulating her. 
She feeds Sansa a line of bullshit about how, sorry I didn't come get you the past couple days. I had to murder the entire castle, which, you know, she says it nicely and without the murder bits. They're killing everyone. Uh, Cersei's, I'm sorry, when I think of this, I think of like, I don't know, some sort of like hard metal music going on like we are crying blood or not metal music i don't know evanescence or some shit (gasps) and what i am also getting out of this wardrobe that cersei is wearing is shades of Rhaegar targaryen and the armor that he wore at the at the trident i don't think it means anything but it's interesting that these are the colors that she's chosen that she has these rubies woven onto her black dress yeah for sure. Sansa then tells Cersei, though, that like at least she's been treated well and that no one will tell us what's happening. And so Cersei's just like, hold up. I'm sorry. Us? What the fuck is Ooh. us? Oomst? Oomstative? Oomstative? Is us? Oh, Werpst? Oh. Oomst? Us? Boros totally is like sheepish. She's like, oh yeah, the steward's girl. Is with them. That one girl. We couldn't kill the young girl. She's with them. And Cersei is like, next time you will ask, she said, her voice sharp. The gods only know what sort of tales she's been filling Sansa's head with. Jane's scared, Sansa said. She won't stop crying. I promised her I'd ask if she could see her father. All of the adults in the room, like, they look away. At this scene, it gets kind of awkward. No one responds. Sansa asks if Jane's dad is cool, if he's fine, and thinks no one would harm a steward. Veon Poole didn't even wear a sword. Dude, he was helpless. Mm-hmm. He was slain and they, they, they killed him. He was helpless, dude. Fuck the Lannisters, you know? Like, fuck, fuck off, fuck a Lannister. Fuck him, fuck him. I don't even give a fuck about the Lannisters. Yeah. Who the fuck? They ain't shit. Fuck a Lannister. Tyrion, whatever. Jamie, whatever. Cersei, whatever. Fuck him. Fuck a Lannister. I said what I said. It's just, as you said, Van Poole was absolutely helpless. He had nothing to do with all of this. It's, to quote Jorah Mormont. Ugh. But, you know, you Sansa here is thinking that Van Poole doesn't have any power. He's not a pawn. He's not part of this whole game. And therefore... Everyone's he, a yeah. pawn, Sansa. Yeah. From pawn to player, though, later on. But, you know. Anyways, yeah. so... <laughs> Veonpool's not part of this, and she thinks that he should be left alone, but the truth is that when you are lowborn, and you are, again, caught in the game that the High Lords play, you are the lowborn are the one who suffer most, and we're going to see that a lot when we come to Clash, um, not necessarily in Sansa's storyline, but it, it, it is absolutely a running thing throughout A Clash of Kings. It runs throughout A Feast for Crows. And Veonpool is one of the first examples of that to someone whose life has been built on these stories and dreams and this idea of what fairness and justice is or should be and finding out it's not. Worse than that, House Pool is built on that. Absolutely. House Pool is built on the Starks and on the Starks' fairness and on their rise to power. And when the Starks fall, House Pool falls even harder. Cersei plays her devilishly clever scheme that could only ever go over the head of an 11-year-old, of course. And in the end, it really doesn't, right? Sansa operates on the honor system, just like her dad, as we learn. Mm -hmm. 
And Cersei then asks the council, so what, what should we do about Jane Poole? Because we can't have Jane upsetting Sansa. And in this moment, Littlefinger says that he will take care of it. Goddamn. So what does that really mean? To us readers, we know exactly what this means. This is the government pawning Jane off on one of their consultants, and she gets trafficked into sex slavery and sold to the Boltons eventually. Cersei tells Littlefinger to take care of it and to not keep her in the city. So each time that you read this chapter, I, I want you to think of Jane Poole, of her cowering skinny and ragged in her pelts in Winterfell, cold. I was never beautiful like Sansa, but they all said I was pretty. Jane's entire life has led to this moment. For her, much like Theon Greyjoy, to be a Stark, something she could never be, living as nothing but a steward's daughter. Each lash on Jane's back reminds me of the corrupt, disgusting politicians, right, who can't even own up to the crime they've committed, yet easily can endanger innocent people to keep blood off of their hands. If you are listening to this podcast and you think Littlefinger is cool or flashy or edgy, I know a lot of people that just like are like, I think Littlefinger is great and he should be on the throne. And I don't, I don't get you, dude. Like, think again. He, he sold a young girl, age 11, 12, into sex slavery, right? To be assaulted in every manner. And she was sold again, once more, for worse to the Boltons. Like, what was it for in the end? We see, we see contrasts of this in future Arya chapters. If you haven't read the Winds of Winter sample chapter, Mercy, you'll, you won't know, but close your ears. Arya herself begins to hone kind of a small amount of her sexuality and agency as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, something Jane Poole has never had, not even once and never will. Poor Jane, right? If you think Cersei and Peter aren't going to die a gruesome death, you're wrong. They are literally supposed to be these corrupt, corrupt politicians, these political figures. The mindless ignorance they exhibit in this scene is unbearable. In the background, you could just hear Sansa's, when I am queen, I'll make them love me from the Blackwater, right? Ever so softly chiming in. It's the hope in a better world. It's a more just world. It comes from these kids on these pages that we're seeing. Absolutely agreed. I mean, if just like rereading these scenes and keeping in mind what happens to Jane, and, you know, you brought up some of those Wind's chapters, if you haven't read... Wind's chapters cover your ears, but like, even when Jane's finally rescued, she doesn't get to be Jane. She has to be, she has to keep pretending to be Arya because no one's gonna fucking care about her if she's not. Like Theon tells her, you gotta, you gotta keep telling people that you're Arya Stark because otherwise you're gonna get just dumped out in the snow. And if you reread the scene, that it's not even just like. It's the moral bankruptcy of these adults discussing how they're going to move this little girl, this child, and just traffic her. Like, what happens to Jane Poole isn't just... I mean, yeah, it's sex slavery when Littlefinger brings her to be married off to Ramsay. He's all like, oh, it's fine, I've trained her well. And then you just have these scars on her back. The adults are talking about Jane like she's an annoyance. Like, this is nothing to them. They're talking about her like, oh yes, we're going to pair these nice lacy napkins with the plates. That's how they're talking about Jane. Like, she's nothing. And, I don't know, 
some every now and then I people see people bring up this line from the show, which just goes to show how utterly different Cersei's character is. And she's all like, everyone in the world, they hurt little girls. Like, Cersei Lannister is absolutely a part of this system. She's not doing a damn thing to dismantle it. Here she is, selling Jane Poole into sex slavery and human trafficking because it is inconvenient for her to have Jane Poole there. Just like reread it, it's it's a nauseating scene. Like just thinking about what's going on, what they're talking about in the background, and what happens to Jane. And of course, Sansa's so young; she just she doesn't understand, right? She just keeps asking where Jane's dad is and why Boros won't take her to her father instead of Peter's apartments. And Sansa really stands up to this, even though she doesn't understand it, right? She's eleven; she doesn't quite she doesn't have that knowledge. She doesn't know that that happens in this world, right? Did you know when you were 11? You just knew that your parents said to you, like, don't talk to strangers. Like, you know, you could get kidnapped by bad people. Like, that's all you knew. You didn't understand as a teenager or an 11-year-old. You didn't think to yourself, like, oh, like, I could get sex trafficked and put into a sex ring and then married to a guy and then he's going to abuse me and make me fuck his dog. Like, you don't think that when you're 11, obviously, but that's kind of like... Sansa at least tried, even though she didn't understand it. And they tried to get, and they told Jane to come with her, and they give her this, like, small inkling of hope, because now they know, because Sansa's just like, uh, yo, where is Jane's dad? And they're like, just tell Jane that you're going to take her to go see her father. And, like, for a second, she thinks she's going to see safety, and then after that, she just has a life of pain. Jane, Jane. Rhymes with pain. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, and I was like, all right, yep, that that is what it is. Now that we're nice and depressed... Welcome to Girls Gone Canon. Girls Gone Sad. Jane Poole deserved better. Let her finish her blunt. She did. (laughs) Let Jane Poole finish her blunt. Oh, Sir Boros Blunt. Ew. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, And then, so Sansa says, she had promised herself she would be a lady gentle as the queen and strong as her mother, the Lady Catelyn. But all of a sudden she was scared again. For a second she thought she might cry. Where are you sending her? She hasn't done anything. She's a good girl. She's upset you, the queen said gently. We can't be having that. Not another word now. Lord Baelish will see that Jane's well taken care of, I promise you. She patted the chair beside her. This, I don't know, this line is absolutely indicative, of course, of Sansa's worldview. Life is fair. Only those who have done bad are punished. This idea of, like, she hasn't done anything, she's a good girl. And those who are good, like Jane, who haven't done anything wrong, they will be rewarded or nothing bad will happen to them. And that's not, that's not how this works, right? Like, people constantly say, like, Sansa did nothing to help Jane Poole. They just took her. But, like, what? Did you just read this chapter? Sansa did a very brave thing for an 11-year-old girl who made a mistake and is all alone with the queen, the evil queen and her companions, right? Like, the recession is probably Sansa's fault as well, if you didn't know it. Like, Cersei is manipulative. Like, Cersei had the power to manipulate Ned. Why is it so surprising she has the power to manipulate an 11-year-old girl who idolizes queens? For sure. And, like, they reassured Sansa, and also, you have to think that... 
there isn't anything Sansa could do. She couldn't do anything. And this, this entire chapter, the next chapter is very much highlighting the powerlessness that Sansa has in a King's Landing. She's an 11-year-old girl. She has no political power. And she's going to be forced to do whatever they want her to do. Not as brutally as Jane is forced, of course. But what what can she do other than try and survive? Yeah, Sansa's survivalist instincts are very big here. Cersei uses Joffrey and her own love for Sansa to manipulate her about her dad's treason. And she also uses very soft and floral language while she does so. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, but like being an adolescent is fucking hard, dude. Like Cersei is absolutely manipulating Sansa's adolescent desire to be accepted, that desire to be loved. And look at how she couches this entire scene. She's like, I do hope you know how much Joffrey and I love you. And Sansa's absolutely astounded. She's like, you do? Because she doesn't fucking know. Like these past few weeks, Sansa hasn't felt that loved. Like her dad's not being been paying any attention to her he like killed her fucking dog like that doesn't feel very loving (laughs) of course and her sister and she haven't like necessarily gotten along like she's even been at odds with septa mordain who's been punishing her for the way she's been acting and like sansa has jane right and then all of a sudden this beautiful queen that sansa is idolizing this queen who's everything that sansa thinks the song should be everything that sansa like wants to be tells her that the prince the prince and she loves Sansa that she thinks of Sansa like a daughter and Sansa who hasn't been as close to her father the past week Sansa who was away from her mother whom you see just now she thinks strong like her the lady Catelyn she's far from her mother and having someone to be that figure for her is so enticing and they all tell her that she has to be brave you must be brave child like a brave young girl would would support the crown and be loyal to the crown. Sansa immediately defends Ned. She says he would never steal the throne from Joffrey. She tells them there has to have been a mistake. Robert was his friend. Cersei, of course, then holds Sansa's being the daughter of a traitor over her head against her marriage to Joffrey, and the puppet strings easily play. Sansa's wailing. She's like, I love Joffrey. I love him. Same. Sorry. I feel also- it. I feel that. I do, dude. <laughs> also, I, I mentioned this like the other night, but, like reading Joffrey's name so many times throughout these chapters, I just keep reading it like in my head as Joffy. <laughs> like I'm just hearing Tom and go, Joffy. Oh. And I know, right? It makes it like so much more enjoyable. <laughs> Cersei claims though that she like knows that. Why else, like, would Sansa have told Cersei of Ned's plans, if not for her love for Joffrey? And Sansa goes, it was for love, Sansa said in a rush. Father wouldn't even give me leave to say farewell. She was the good girl, the obedient girl, but she had felt as wicked as Arya that morning, sneaking away from Septimore Dane, defying her lord father. She had never done anything so willful before. She would have never done it. Then, if she hadn't loved Joffrey as much as she did. Which is ultimately, like, this is the ultimate progression of a teenage rebellion kind of flatline, or, like, preteen rebellion. Like, I remember doing things that I knew my parents wouldn't approve of. And her thought process begins to outline what happened. She wanted to tell the king that Ned wouldn't let her say goodbye to Joffrey and that he was sending them home. But the king scared her, so she told Cersei, who had been gentle and sweet as any good mother could be to her, Cersei thanked her and sent her back with Ares to her chambers, and then the fighting began within hours. And 
I'd be mad if like this whole scene of Sansa sneaking out to get strawberry tarts or something is supposed to be foreshadowing for all this because like the language is similar where she's like, I felt as wicked as Arya. But also, I want to just say that like Sansa did intend to tell Robert, but maybe if Robert hadn't been Dad. such a sh- oh, I was gonna say such a shitty oh, drunk. That too. Maybe I don't know. Like he wasn't accessible or warm anymore that it's so different from the robert earlier you know pre-rebellion and stuff where people are like oh yeah he's so great he was so charming and everyone fucking loved him now like the little girls who idolize the songs that robert used to be are like uh yeah no that he's super scary it is weird to think of him like that when you know he's not capable of anything like that the council keeps discussing that the traitor's blood is in Sansa, and that Arya had even set her own woof on Joffrey. There's no way Sansa could remain loyal to the crown, which, of course, now now we know Sansa would probably murder the hell out of the crown if she had the chance. Yeah, but, I mean, it's their fault. And also, I just want to... I'm going to keep coming back to this throughout this chapter, but I just want to, like, rip Pycelle's beard off of his face here. Like, not just rip, just, you know, pluck it out strand by strand. Have you ever plucked out your eyebrows and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel good plucking your hair out but I just want to do that because Pycelle's being so awful to Sansa in the scene and the, like the next few chapters he won't shut up every single time something happens he's like oh but the traitor's blood runs through her right like shut up Pycelle I know leave her alone you're so dumb Cersei then finally thinks that like if Sansa though can be able to get her kin to be loyal then the fears that the small council feels about Sansa could be deemed unnecessary. Just if. So, of course, Sansa is manipulated into writing to her family. And it's so messed up. The adults talk about her like she's not there. The words they say say so much more like Peter saying that they should be concerned about the Tullys, yada yada. They're practically making half-assed war plans out loud without using the word war or 100% planning it. And they're also just spinning circles around her, just these adults to a child. The queen took Sansa's hand in both of hers. Child, do you know your letters? Sansa nodded nervously. She could read and write better than any of her brothers, although she was hopeless at sums. I'm pleased to hear that. Perhaps there is hope for you and Joffrey still. What do you want me to do? You must write your lady mother and your brother, the eldest, dot, dot, dot. Then Littlefinger takes this time. Because they're like, oh, but there's three sons. And Littlefinger's like, oh, yes, Catelyn. Yes, Catelyn, of course, she has three sons. And just a few paragraphs ago, he's like, hmm, actually... Does she have her father's traitor's blood? Because Sansa looks a lot more like Catelyn. And it's a very, it's a little subtle, but his obsession with Catelyn is just starting to come through in this passage. Like, you know how, like, he just won't shut the fuck up about her. Like, how some people don't shut the fuck up about people that they're into. They're like, oh yeah, but like, trying to bring them into every conversation. I almost wonder if, in a way, he was trying to set groundwork for that. If Catelyn decided to not, you know, remain loyal to her husband, that there would be a place for her to come back and swear fealty. And he could be like... Well, you should marry me, and now I'll be married to Catelyn Tully. I do think that that is part of what's going on here. Yeah. Because we see him do that a few times later on. And then he moves to Sansa after she dies. 
Oh, so gross. Cersei tells Sansa that she needs to write to her relatives that she's well and being treated well and she wants for nothing and that they must come to King's Landing to swear their fealty to Joffrey and that when she flowers, she will wed the king. Sansa hesitates and asks, can I speak with my father, though? And then Cersei immediately goes sour on her. She, like, becomes hard and mean, and she's like, Sansa, you've disappointed me. And Sansa, being a small girl, she, like, feels tears welling up and says that she only wanted to know that Ned was well and that he wasn't harmed. It's fucked up. Yeah. Grandmeister Pysel tells her that Joffrey will decide his fate, but Sansa thinks, oh, I, I must I must plead to the king. Joffrey loves me. The queen says so. He'd never hurt Ned if she asked. So, of course, there's this line that only if mother or Rob did anything treasonous, calling the banners or refused to swear fealty or anything, it could go all wrong. For Joffrey was good and kind. She knew it in her heart, but a king had to be stem with rebels. She, a king had to be stern with rebels. She had to make them understand. She had to. She writes four letters. One to her mother, one to her brothers, one to her grandfather, Hoster, and one to her aunt, Liza. These are all major political players, and she hasn't... I don't know if she's ever met Hoster or Liza, mm-hmm. but I guess they're like, you know, whatever. They'll probably know her handwriting. I don't know. It's also worth pointing out that in this desperation that the small council and Cersei have just planted... In Sansa, her hand is just sore after writing all of these letters. It's stained with ink. But she just powered through writing all of them anyway because she's so worried that it could all go wrong. And it isn't necessarily in this moment about her hope to marry Joffrey. She's worried about her family being branded as rebels and what's going to happen to them if they are. Though, of course, she doesn't understand the full danger of the situation yet. But she's just beginning to because Small Council's been just talking circles around her. Yeah, she like... She gets what it means for her if they don't swear fealty, but she really hasn't wrapped her head around kind of the brevity of it all. Yeah, she she understands that they could be punished. She doesn't understand that they will be killed. That's, And she doesn't want them to be punished, which is part of, I think, why she's like, it would all go wrong and is worried about them. Yeah. All of these letters were sealed with her father's seal that they had kept. And by the time Mandon Moore returns her to Magor's holdfast, Jane is already gone. She thinks pretty favorably on, oh, thank God, no more sobs from Jane Poole. But at the same time, she feels colder without her there, even after she builds a fire. This is some great writing from George, just calling that out of like showing how Sansa feels scared and alone by talking about the temperature and feeling, physical feeling, rather than telling us. Yeah, I love that. She then does a very Sansa thing. And she pulls out stories to keep her comfort. And she reads on Florian and Jeanquil, Shella and the Rainbow Knight, and Prince Aemon and his brother's queen. And I just want to call this out here because I tried to figure this out. I'm like, who the fuck is Lady Shella and the Rainbow Knight? Like, literally, this is the only time we've ever heard about them. These are the important questions I am telling you. Who is Lady Shella and the Rainbow Knight? Yeah, the only, that's literally the only feature of that story in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's no one else. The only other time we hear about the Rainbow Knights is, of course, the Rainbow Knights, the Rainbow Guard, for Runley and for Queen Marjorie. They seem very different. 
and like present day and not in a storybook. Sansa then realizes as she's drifting off to sleep that, oh, she forgot to ask about Arya. I don't think that was like a purposeful ask. I mean, she had a pretty full plate of court, but it is kind of that telling of like sisters growing apart in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Physically and literally. looks great. Yeah, there's that. It's, she just was bombarded with a lot of information and a lot of decisions she suddenly had to make. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that wraps up Sansa 4. Ugh. On to Sansa 5. But first, our lightning round. John 7. Two of the rangers that went north with Benjen are found, and there's something odd about their bodies. News of the king's death reaches Castle Black, and John learns Ned has been charged with treason! Wow. Late at dinner, Alistair Thorne takes his mocking a step too far, and John attacks him. John saves the Lord Commander, though, from a reanimated corpse of one of the dead rangers. In Bran 6, Bran welcomes the Karstarks into Winterfell and prays in the Godswood. Osha tells him about the old gods and the others, and how Rob is marching in the wrong direction. Bran tells Maester Lewin this advice, but Rob still marches south. Speaking of Rob marching south, in Catelyn 8, the Blackfish and Catelyn arrive at Moat Caelan, and they are trying to figure out the fastest way to that they're going to take their troops to King's Landing. So Catelyn speaks with her son Rob, and she warns him about the need and the price of using the crossing watched by House Frey. Dun, dun, dun. And then she also thinks a little bit and notices about Rob's shitty 16-year-old peach fuzz, a.k.a. pube beard. Like, <laughs> I just want everyone to take this moment while we're thinking about being a teenager and adolescence. Like, remember all those shitty beards? Rob had one. That, yeah, that boys thought were cool. That boy is poison. Um, So, in Sansa Stark 5, an overview, Joffrey holds court for the first time as the protector of the Seven Kingdoms and calls for the noble houses to pledge their fealty to him. The small council announces some changes in their lineup, right? In lands and knighthoods, Barristan's out, the Hound is in, and just a few other minor betrayals. Sansa begs for mercy for her father and Joffrey says he will be merciful if Ned will confess his treason and name Joffrey the king. And so, Sansa 5. Now that Robert has died, his hunting tapestries have been taken down, which I've never noticed that this is the chapter where they actually mention that the first time, and it's actually very great, because the next time that they really are relevant into this story, come back into play, is through Sansa's storyline, when Littlefinger asks for them from King's Landing when he's in the Vale. I'm interested to see how that storyline pays off, honestly. Me too, me too. The Nestor Royce thing is, like, very interesting to me. I love the veil. I love its history. The Battle of the Seven Stars, so good. Sansa is free to roam the castle, but she's always guarded. Cersei calls them her honor guard, but Sansa doesn't exactly feel honored, right? Sansa is basically a glorified prisoner, a rat in a cage. She is unable to leave because of Jano Slint's guards. She's not sure where she would go anyways, though. Yeah, I mean... I guess she goes She goes to the godswood because, as she says, since the Starks kept the old gods, which I think is a step showing Sansa's journey back towards home. Stark-dumb. Yeah, home. Home. Oh, Winterfell. 
This is, of course, right before Joffrey's first court session, which there are no small folk at this session. Yeah, and this is interesting in contrast to another court session that we saw that Sansa also saw, which might be why she notices this, where Ned's like, oh, I don't want Sansa here. But the one that Ned held, where we find out about Gregor Clegane laying waste and the Lannister forces laying waste to the Riverlands, that had a lot of small folk giving their testimony. Yeah, it speaks in the new Lannister regime, too, that we're seeing only red and gold striping the halls. I also want to point out that usually, I guess, there are hundreds of guards, right, in this hall guarding the king. But right now, there are no more than 20 men, 20 lords by Joffrey, 20 good oh my God. men. Just 20. I... 20 good men. Enough to, enough to ravage an entire army. Mm the north so in attendance at this meeting that we see for sure is jalavar joe aaron santagar horace and slobber Redwine, lord giles sir dantos and sir balin swan and most of them are just pretending not to know sansa there are also many faces that are missing from the crowd that are friendly faces to sansa and she notes them as well it was as if she had become a ghost dead before her time I don't like theories that say that Sansa's going to die within the span of these books. Because they're wrong. There is, yeah, there is similar language, though, here to the way that Lyanna has been described. Like, be- beautiful, willful, and dead before her time. I do want to say that in the last chapter, we had her thinking about sneaking to Cersei and telling her what her dad had said, and that she felt willful during that time, so I do think it really ties into that two halves of a whole thing with Arya, her equaling Lyanna. Mm-hmm. The small council are there again, Pycelle, Baelish, and Varys. And of course, when Baelish enters the room, Sansa begins to feel fear, and she tells herself she mustn't be afraid. Yeah, because Baelish is creepy AF. But of course, this parallels Arya's chapters, especially the one like right before... Sansa 4, where Arya's mantra becomes fear cuts deeper than swords, as opposed to the not today, which is also a very well done and classic choice from the show. But it contrasts again those lessons that the boys learn, like the girls tell themselves not to feel fear and to steal themselves, but because of Ned telling his sons that a man is courageous when he feels afraid and acts despite that, that's true bravery. So the boys kind of learn, I think, to accept their own feelings of fear while the girls learn to try to ignore it or stuff it down yeah it's total overarching meta on being a female am i right mm-hmm, it is you're like taught to like ignore all these warning signs and Baelish is giving off so many warning signs get a job get a job get a job get a job okay Harrison Selmy leads the Kingsguard into the room followed by Aerys Oakheart who escorts Cersei then Boros Blount besides Joffrey all the Kingsguard, minus Jamie, are actually there. Joff wore plush black velvets slashed with a crimson, a shimmering cloth of gold cape with a high collar, and on his head, a golden crown crusted with rubies and black diamonds. Okay, it's my turn to have a fashion hour. I'm doing it. Okay, get it. So, again, we get some of these Rhaegari vibes, I think, with like this color combination of the black and the red. But what I want to talk about here for a moment is like what Joff is actually wearing, because this is something that I thought was really interesting. That idea of the velvet slashed with crimson. And it doesn't just mean like, oh, look, it's like 
got a splash of red. He's like got these like red accents here because I think that in this line when George talks about that, he's drawing inspiration from actual Renaissance era clothing, which like take that all like the it's medieval Europe. Okay, sure, medieval Europe preceded the Renaissance and this is kind of at the cusp, but whatever. It's Renaissance clothing. We have Renaissance painting methods to chronicle <laughs> this fashion. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox and get on a different one right now. That slashing was a specific fashion trend that was popularized in the mid-1400s. It's like this decorative technique where people would actually wear like multiple layers of clothing because, you know, we style in. And the top layer was slashed. And by that, I mean, they literally cut the cloth so that the layers beneath would show through. And what they would do is they would take some of those under, like those under layers and garments and they would just kind of pull them through a little through the cuts and stuff. And this, of course, is partially a status symbol. It shows that they can, like, afford all these, like, layers of clothing to wear it. But it's, like, a sartorial statement. I mean, like, why does anyone fashion? (laughs) And this technique... (laughs) Yeah, why does anyone fashion? The technique was introduced by, actually, interesting history, the Swiss army troops that, after the defeat of Charles the Bold of Burgundy, and the Swiss troops, they took scraps of, like, the tents and the banners, and they would thread them through the holes in their own garments, and this showed that it wasn't like solely like the up, an upper class trend. It actually started out amongst more lower classes before making its way up, kind of like grunge, you know. And so with that image in mind, because this is a reread, I think you can see kind of like echoes of the Tattered Prince and even Vance Raider. I don't know if it means anything, but just saying like, hashtag real fashion, fun times. Oh my god. Mark Jacobs, not Mark Jacobs. What? Gucci. What? <laughs> Joff says this thing about how it's his duty to punish the disloyal and reward the true, which is not his job. It's not for him, first off. And Paisal acts super fancy as he reads aloud the decrees that Joffrey has issued. He reads a parchment and calls forth many names, asking them to swear fealty. The names he read made Sansa hold her breath. Lord Stannis, Lord Baratheon, his lady wife, his daughter... Lord Renly Baratheon, both Lord Royces and their sons, Sir Loras Tyrell, Lord Mace Tyrell, his brothers, uncles, and sons, the Red Priests, Thoros Amir, Beric Dondarrion, Lady Liza Aaron and her son, the Little Robert, Lord Hoster Tully, his brother, Sir Brendan, his son, Sir Edamir, Lord Jason Malister, Lord Bryce Caron of the Marches, Lord Titus Blackwood, Lord Walder Frey, and his heir, Sir Stevron. Lord Carl Vance, Lord Jonas Bracken, Lady Shella Went, Doran Martell, Prince of Dorne, and all his sons. So many, she thought, as Pysel read on and on. It will take a whole flock of hens to send out these commands. I just want to quickly say that it's funny here that it just says Prince of Dorne and all his sons. It just shows how little respect they have for women in King's Landing and that they just don't understand Dornish culture because it should say Doran Martell, Prince of Dorne, and all his children. Yeah. Because Arian Martell, of course will be Princess of Dorne. Yep, absolutely. And these names all have an indeed common interest because they're all people who were loyal to other causes but Cersei, just like we said, loyal to others first, crowned second. There's Lord Renly Baratheon, who left the morning Robert died. There's Lord Royce and his sons, Sir Loras Tyrell and Lord Mace Tyrell. There's the Red Priest, Thoros Amir, Lord Beric Dondarrion, Liza, and Robert Aaron. Lord Hoster, Brendan, and Edmure Tully, 
Lord Malister, Lord Karen, Titus Blackwood, Walter Frey, Stevern Frey, Carol Vance, Jonas Brackwood, Shella Went, and Doran Martell. All of these people don't need a lot of explaining, right? There's at least 70% of this list. It's like 70%. They're, they're not coming to King's Landing. They're not. They're not doing it. Oh. They're not coming. Absolutely not. Not at all. Also interesting, Garland Tyrell is not mentioned. Well, they do say uh, Mace and his sons. Yeah, it's just Loris isn't firstborn. It's kind of funny. I guess it's because he was at King's Landing. I don't know. Yeah, they were like, well, we remember this boy, I guess. <laughs> and at the end of the list, near last, came the name Sansa had been dreading. Lady Catelyn Stark, Rob Stark, Brandon Stark, Rickon Stark, Arya Stark. Sansa stifled a gasp. Arya? They wanted Arya to present herself and swear an oath. It must mean her sister had fled on the galley. She must be safe at Winterfell by now. Which, of course, is the saddest to think of. They all think that the others are safe, right? The Stark kids. But they're not, when they're all just so alone and worrying about each other's well-being. And, ugh, that's so sad. I do think it's interesting here that when Arya, Sansa's thinking of Arya, she uses that word that Arya must be safe now. And I don't know if, like, that's relief, but... I do think it means that on an implicit level, Sansa understands and feels that King's Landing is not safe for her to think Arya must be gone and safe now, because she knows that King's Landing, of course, is not safe for Ned right now, because it's not. Not at all. Tywin Lannister is appointed Hand of the King in place of Ned, and Cersei gets appointed to the Small Council in Stannis' place, which leads to a lot of whispers and murmuring. Which, first off, like she wasn't running it before, of course, but this is kind of big historically because females on the small council aren't really a thing. You have, like, Tyanna of the Tower and Lady Jane Arryn, but there aren't a lot of powerful figures on the small council making decisions. And, of course, there's Alyssa Valerian, for example, who was a regent during the reign of Jaehaerys, and there's a possibility we'll learn other women that were on the small council in the future, but... Obviously, not too many, based on the surprise about John Quill Dark, the Scarlet Shadow, and the Sworn Sword of Elysane. And while technically not on the small council, Visenya and Rhaenys were Aegon I's counselors for day-to-day governance. So women do definitely have a place in the government, but being appointed publicly is still kind of a big deal. Though, you know, Pycelle was a puppet. Yeah. Janos Slant is made Lord of Harrenhal, which only makes the murmuring louder and angrier, especially those of old bloodlines. I'm glad that this is what really bothered everyone. Uh, this is actually... Which, to be fair, it is kind of a big deal uh, when we're talking about those old bloodlines. Like, Jano Slint gets Harrenhal, like, the place to be, the biggest, he gets Harrenhal. He's not shit, right? Like, he's just as up-jumped, like, he ain't shit. He's not shit. He's really not shit, though. Like, he wishes he was even shit like i couldn't even like this guy's not good enough to come out of my ass i wouldn't even flush this motherfucker i wouldn't i wouldn't even eat anything to make this motherfucker okay never mind what am i saying slint wears golden scales and black velvet and this is i guess his new house colors and shit like he's checked with black and gold satin his sigil is a bloody sphere and it's gold. The Bloody Spear is gold on a night black field. And coming back again to Sansa's like intuition. And she wasn't there in the room, but she thinks that the sight of it raised goose pimples up and down Sansa's arms. I do kind of think that 
what is this like gold on Night Blackfield? Like, is this a tongue in cheek reference to how Slint is later sent to the wall? Like, these are the two colors of the station he has held. He's been part of the Gold Cloaks and then the Black Brothers. Is that what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that's being taken into account. Hallelujah, sister. You guys, I want everyone to know how comfortable Chloe looks right now. I am slumped over a pillow. I'm so tired. Um, she looks so great. Barristan is then called forth, and they ask him to remove his helm. He's like, um, excuse me? He's asked to step down then as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, which is very confusing for him because, of course, only death may relieve him of this position. Whose death, Sir Barristan? The Queen's voice was soft as silk, but her words carried the whole length of the hall. Yours or the king's? Joffrey's all like, you let my father die, which, man, this sucks to read, right? The shame he's feeling, and after we've read these POVs, we went through this new golden lying regime taking him out like this. It's just disgusting. So terrible. I mean, he has his his downsides with, like, This is just so humiliating. And then, of course, because you all know about Sir Barristan, because we literally did his POVs as a whole segment on this podcast, uh, we get some of his own history from his own mouth here, which we're just going to call back because we think it's fun. Your grace, Barristan said, I was chosen for the White Swords in my 23rd year. It was all I'd ever dreamed. From the moment I first took sword in hand, I gave up all claim to my ancestral keep. The girl I was to wed married my cousin in my place. I had no need of land or sons. My life would be lived for the realm. Sir Gerald Hightower himself heard my vows. To ward the king with all my strength, to give my blood for his. I I fought beside the White Bull and Prince Lewin of Dorne. Besides Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, before I served your father, I helped shield King Ares and his father Jaehaerys before him. Three kings. Who are all dead, Littlefinger points out. Jamie Lannister gets promoted to Lord Commander in his stead, which, of course, Barristan takes great offense to. That was the man who killed his last king. Yeah. That's actually super ironic in this context where they're like, yeah, those kings are dead, so we're going to put the guy who killed them, whatever. Varys, at the very least, though, has a good sense to offer a consolation prize to Barristan in this moment of, like, oh, we're going to give you a land and keep and, like, people and shit. And Barristan's like, I don't want that. Yeah, he chose this life, dude. This is what he wanted. Yeah. It chose him. Everyone starts to laugh when he uncloaks himself, even his sworn brothers. Surely that must have hurt the most, Sansa thought. Her heart went out to the gallant old man as he stood shamed and red-faced, too angry to speak. Finally, he drew his sword. Sansa recognizes his stature and his history, even here. And also beyond that, I think... You can see when she thinks that must have hurt the most, she's feeling empathy for Barristan. This idea of him being just humiliated in front of all of these people after everything he's done, in front of the men that he commanded, that were supposed to be his brothers. It's fucked up. Barristan then does a mic drop speech before leaving, and, like, this is such a dumb move on the Lannister regime, as Tywin points out later. Yeah, like... I don't know. It, it, I get the whole idea lately a lot in business. You get the whole 
fire the old man that's been there 50 years and hire a younger guy with no experience and pay them no money, squat money, then just do it, though. You know, like, not in a big scene. It's embarrassing for everyone that's actually involved. Agreed. Joffrey is then, like, taken aback that, of all things, Barrison called him boy (laughs) and then mentioned Stannis might end up sitting on the throne. Which I guess makes Joffrey paranoid on top of his bruised ego. It's really, it's really that like Joffrey's super offended and his ego's been bruised. Uh, male fragility, <laughs> and he orders Barristan seized. And Janos is all like, "Yeah, it's fine. My gold cloaks are gonna take care of it." Meanwhile, in a dance with dragons, <gasps> Janos is dead, <laughs> or and Barristan and is Barristan's alive. What? what? Season whatever. I don't know. Drinks wine. You want to talk about your baby boy? Yeah. Sandra Clegane gets a promotion, but he refuses to become a knight, even though he has to take the position on the King's Guard, which, good for you, baby boy. A man's got to have his code. And I think this might be a good time, as time of any, to address that I love Sandra Clegane. If you're listening to this podcast and you didn't realize that by now, I feel like you're you're just not paying attention. He's basically my baby boy, right? He's my baby boy, my baby, and I love him. So we can move on now. I just remembered this tweet someone sent us about last week's episode where Sandra gets Renly's <laughs> the the thing, and then they someone like tweeted at us this Arrested Development. Game. It was so That's good. It was so right good. Now. And they were like. <laughs> I don't want this or something. It's hilarious. Uh, okay. Yes, so Sandor is now Kingsguard. And Baby boy. He's like, I don't need... I'm qualified. I don't need no college <laughs> degree. It is now almost time for Sansa to go forth. And like the previous chapter, she is dressed for the occasion. She was dressed in mourning as a sign of respect for the dead king, but she had taken special care to make herself beautiful. Her gown was the ivory silk the queen had given her, the one Arya had ruined, but she'd had them dye it black and you couldn't see the stain at all. She'd fretted over her jewelry for hours and finally decided upon the elegant simplicity of a plain silver chain. She's scared, but she asks the gods for courage as she steps out. People eye her and she's thinking, I must be as strong as my lady mother. I love this segment. Like, Sansa dressed to convey that penance and simplicity. She's showed it, showing in a way like patriotism by wearing the black and learning for Robert as opposed to dressing for humility in the last chapter when she, like, didn't really know. And this line about being as strong as her lady mother, you know, we it happened in the last chapter where she talks about the strength of Catelyn and, I don't know, I guess you, dear listener, might not like Catelyn, but damn is Catelyn a fierce woman. Mm-hmm. She like outwits Tyrion Lannister, much to his own chagrin. She's treating with kings, she's sneaking into King's Landing, she's like out here like doing things. Sure, Lady Stoneheart is not Catelyn Stark and vengeance is not admirable, but like she's She's still she's doing a strong things. woman. She she's she is a force to be reckoned with, I think. Joffrey smiles as Sansa comes forward, and Sansa thinks he does love her. Everything that Cersei has said is roping her in. Sansa kneels upon Sir Barrison's cloak and asks for mercy for her father, Lord Eddard, which 
I never really noticed that imagery before that she kneels on Sir Barristan's white cloak, mm-hmm. a soiled cloak now. You know, it's over. That cloak is an mm-hmm. ex-cloak. Oh, I was thinking you were going to talk about... Sandor's cloak? We're going to get to that. Yes. Maybe in A Clash okay. of Kings. We'll talk some more maybe. about it. No, we're going to. There's no maybe. I don't know why I said maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe. It was like a flirtatious <laughs> maybe. Like, you all know. Uh, we're going to talk about what she's hidden in the bottom of her summer silks. And, you know, Sansa comes up and Cersei's like, so done with preteens. And she's like, oh my god, what did I just tell you about Traitor's Blood? And like, why are you bringing all this up here again? Like, why are you coming in front of all these people and my salad and talking about all this again? And then Pycelle reminds Sansa that Eddard has committed great crimes. And Varys is like, but just look at her, though. She's so cute. Right. Um, Shut the fuck up, Pycelle. (laughs) Baelish asks if Sansa is denying Ned's crime, and she thinks she knows better than to try to do that. She tries to explain that someone lied to him, someone dissuaded him, like there's no way he would ever say this. She begs for mercy from Ned, which this is all honestly kind of the best you can ask for with a 12-year-old, right? Like this, she is lying her head off, and she's just like hoping that it works. She doesn't, she doesn't know what's happening right now. She's just trying. And apparently, I guess, Joffrey's actually just mad that Ned didn't call him king, I guess. Uh, Apart from the whole treason thing, he's just mad that someone didn't say nice things about him. And Sansa quickly answers as to why Ned said that. His leg was broken, Sansa replied eagerly. It hurt ever so much. Maester Pycelle was giving him milk of the poppy, and they said that milk of the poppy fills your head with clouds, otherwise he would never have said it. Yeah. Opium's a good excuse. I think this is a I think this is a pretty smart, quick excuse. For a 12-year-old whose parents are honorable as sin, like this is pretty impressive, in my opinion, right? Like, Lady Stark, you may survive us yet. Varys echoes Ned's words from Sansa 3, and Varys says, A child's faith, such sweet innocent, and yet they say wisdom oft comes from the mouths of babes. Word. Pysel though. Continues being a butt. He's like, treason is treason. Like, this is his argument. And I I have a thought. I have a thought now. But what if the reason that Pycelle is so staunchly against treason and is such a fucking dickhead about it is because of the guilt that Pycelle feels? Like, Uh, yeah. Ares is not a good king. Pycelle was a, but Pycelle was a traitor for what he did. He always truly supported Tywin in his heart. And it could be argued that convincing Ares to open the gates to the Lannisters was itself an act of treason. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Pycelle had an idea of what was going to happen and what Tywin was doing. And so Pycelle keeps being like, oh yeah, we can't, I'm very against traitors. Traitors are terrible and bad because he is a traitor. Is a traitor. Exactly. I love it. I think, I think you're definitely onto something there. Still gonna, I'm still going to pluck all of his yeah. beard hairs out. But. You should. You really should. Cersei says that if Ned will confess, everything is good. Everything is, as Eliana says, Gucci. Joffrey says he would be merciful if Ned will confess, that he has to confess and say that I'm the king or there will be no mercy for him. And again, tying this back to like lessons that the Stark girls learned versus the lessons that the Stark boys learned. How the boys saw and were taught justice when Ned's like, you would look a man in the eye because you know that it's right, etc. Teaches the boys proper ruling in that way, whereas Ned's death, which is the first beheading that the girls see, 
teaches them vengeance. And this is the mercy that the girls learn, right? The, Joffrey's like, I'm going to show him mercy if he confesses. He doesn't, he doesn't fucking show Ned mercy, right? And this is what the girls learn, which is not mercy at all. Yeah, the definition is definitely skewed. And their plots revolve very much around finding that mercy in the next two books after this book. It's also a moment that, like, as females, we settle. Like, this is, again, overarching Mm meta-commentary. Like, yeah, I have my dad shame the entire house and himself and his family on the sept of Baylor, like, the most religious place in the universe, all for this little pretender king. Like, nice. Well, as long as he lives, guess that's good enough, right? Like, that's that's what we're handed. That's the cards she's handed. That's all she has to play. And so she plays it. And so the chapter ends with Sansa saying that Ned will confess. She knows that he will. And of course he does. She does. And we will get to that, of course. And seeing Ned confess his sins very soon, once more. I feel like we've already gone through it once. So, like, it shouldn't be as painful. But, like, it is. Yeah, it. It doesn't stop being bad, and I think the aftermath in Sansa's chapter is really terrible, but I'm ready. I'm, I'm not, man. Chapter six, that'll be next week. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. This has been such a great episode. Episode 21, Sansa 4 and 5, A Game of Thrones. Please be sure to subscribe to us on social media, at Twitter, at Girls Gone Canon. And of course, give us an email if you're thinking of some stuff at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course, be sure to subscribe and follow this reread along with us. You can find us on Podbean, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher. Yes, on Stitcher. And on Acast. And leave us a comment on like iTunes or any of the things. That'd be pretty swell. Helps people find us. Yeah, and if you haven't checked out our Patreon, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Tons of fun extra content and extra things for you there. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and on maester monthly and we should have a new episode out on me from maester monthly episode 14 as well as another one about the alcine and jahiri's excerpt so check that out thanks so much you guys